morning, everyone. It's great to see everyone, uh, even in the midst of some uh, crazy weather conditions. You know, uh, hopefully you guys didn't get too wet on your way in. If you're joining with us on YouTube Live as well, uh, welcome. Hopefully you'll be able to join with us bodily, uh, spiritually. Uh, maybe you can say something in the comments or in the live chat box, um, and hopefully we can engage with you in that way. My name is Young, I'm lead pastor here at New Life, if we haven't met before, uh, and I'm glad to be able to welcome you this morning. If we haven't met yet, or if you find that I'm struggling uh, with your name, hopefully uh, we'll get to have a few coffees together, and then that name will be embedded in my head for the rest of my life. And it was... Uh, it was nice, it was a little bit sad when our praise team was saying, we can clap together, but we can't sing together. I was like, ooh, this is a step. We're not quite there yet. You know, we're not able to sing together yet. Um, I keep on waiting for that announcement. I don't know if you guys are like me. Like every day, 11.30 a.m., I'm logging in and I'm like, what are they saying? What are they saying? What's the new thing about, you know, has anything new transpired? Has Gladys said something that allows us to sing in services again? Maybe you're not like this. I know praise team can't wait for that day when we can sing together again. Um, there is um, one place that I'm kind of glad that things haven't changed yet, though. You know, maybe um, you're kind of like me if you tune into live sports. Um, in the area of live sports, I'm kind of glad that people aren't able to sing together yet. You know, like, it's a little bit less in Australia. I follow more, you know, European sports than Australian sports. But I know the thrill, and this is purely selfish, okay, so feel free to judge this, but, like, because I know the thrill of watching live sports where the crowd is really into it, the crowd's getting really, really into it, and you hear this wall of noise, you know, they're chanting, they're singing, it can be really intimidating for the other team. Except if you're like me and you support a team that's not really well known for their singing. You know, they're like politely clapping, they're eating their sandwiches, you know, there's a lot of tourists taking photos. And I remember one game in particular where opposition fans were making fun of us. Oh man, it just breaks my heart, you know. They're chanting this thing and I'm like leaning into my iPad to hear what they're saying. And they're saying, you only sing when you're winning. And I was like, at first I was like, yeah, but we're winning a lot, you know? And then the other part of me was like, wait a minute, are we bad fans? Like, and it made me feel really bad. Like, the implication is, my team is filled with these, you know, they call them plastic fans, you know, uh, fair weather fans or fake fans. We only show support when things are going the way that we want. These are the guys that you don't want following your team, right? Because you feel embarrassed. You don't even know what team they support when that team's doing poorly. They never even bring up the sport anymore. They're like, nah, I don't really watch sports. You know, they don't want to talk about it. Maybe they even switch allegiances. This seems to happen a lot more in American sports, actually. You know, I don't know why that is. You know, you want to be someone who's a fan that's with the team through highs and lows. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you don't want to be someone, you want to be a true fan, someone who's there no matter what, who won't just switch. And this is uh, pretty topical today since we're looking at 
a psalm, which is a type of song. You know, if you didn't know, a psalm is a song and we have the words to these songs in our Bibles, you know, in this great long book called Psalms. So why don't we go to God in prayer uh, before we get into the preaching of the word. Father, we turn to you. We turn to you in song. Even when we can't sing together, God, uh, we read together the words that are on screen, that are in our Bibles. And we ask, Lord, that you would make our hearts sing to you. We don't wanna be people that turn away from you when things don't go the way that we want. We wanna be people that are with you through the highs and lows of life, turning to you when things are hard, crying out to you for help, and celebrating you when things are going well. When things are mundane, we wanna give thanks to you, we wanna glorify you, we wanna sing to you and make our lives a prayer to you. We pray, Lord, today that you would help us to open up the word together, that you would help us to delve deep into the word, that you would help us, Lord, to have open hearts, that you might speak your word to us, indeed, you might sing your word to us, that our hearts might resonate with music and turn to you. Help us, Lord, once again, to appreciate the beauty of what you did for us through your son, Jesus. It's only because of him that we can turn to you and call you Father. Unite us once again as your body here at New Life. Help us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in an Easter series called Make Things Right, as Christine mentioned, uh, where we're looking at three different perspectives on that phrase, make things right. You know, the first one is, how do we ask God to make things right? We actually ask God, hey, make things right for us. Second perspective is how we actually attempt to make things right by our own power. We're all kind of susceptible to this. We do this, you know, in our lives. And three, how ultimately God makes things right. If you're joining us for the first time, or perhaps this, is, uh, this past week was a bit of a blur to you with all the rain, maybe it washed away you know, all your memories. Um, last week, we looked at Jeremiah 52, where we saw the destruction of the Israelites' home. And we talked about our concept of home. What is home? The first home that God ever made for us and how it's supposed to be designed to be this place of shalom. You know, if you're not sure what shalom is, if this is a new Hebrew word for you that you've never heard before, check out the message on YouTube last week. Um, We also looked at the Israelites' subjugation, uh, which is just a big, you know, fancy word meaning that they were being ruled by a foreign power, you know, by the Babylonians. And this sets the scene for us as we make our way towards Easter and Jesus' road to the cross. And that brings us to where we are today. In the book of Psalm, we're looking at Psalm 118, as you heard in the scripture reading. Look with me at verses one to four. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let Israel say, his faithful love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his faithful love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his faithful love endures forever. Man, when we're reading through that psalm, you know, this is when all the voices are supposed to come crashing in. Let all those who fear the Lord say his faithful love endures forever. And this psalm tells a bit of a story, which you can follow as you read through the words of scripture in front of you. 
Okay, so keep your Bibles open. Um, with a story, generally speaking, you want to know what kind of feeling the story is trying to leave you with before you even go in. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, when I go to a movie, I want to know beforehand what type of movie am I in for. I don't want to go in thinking, this is going to be a really funny comedy, and then 10 minutes in, I'm scared out of my wits because it's a thriller. You know, you want to know what you're in for. You want to know what the story is about. You want to know who the characters are. So first, the mood of the song. So you get the sense in Psalm 118 that there's some sort of great event. Something really amazing is happening. And people are getting stirred up in excitement. Do you feel that? Like when you're reading this, you know, all these people are chanting this, are singing this. His faithful love endures forever. And you're like, oh, something really good has happened. And the people, these are the characters. You hear a lot of people in this song. The repetition in the beginning, it suggests that there's a group being led by a leader, you know, like our praise leader. Then you see one person from verses 5 to 14, and then you hear many voices joining in from verses 15 onwards as well. And then the story of the song centers around one person in particular who approaches the gates of righteousness in verse 19. And he makes his way to the altar eventually, giving thanks to the Lord for victory in some sort of battle. Ah, you can see what that big event was, what that great big event was. But more than anything else, the central theme that the song conveys is about the faithful love of God, the love that he promised to love us with. Now, of course, when you have a theme like that, you can't help but examine the other side of that theme as well, right? Like, when you think about the faithful love of God, who is he loving? Are they loving him back? The love that God and people are a part of, it's part of something called a covenant. It's an agreement between two sides. We're gonna love each other. And by contrast to God's love, we as people, we have a very extremely conditional love for God. This love that we have, it's based on our thoughts about how things should be, how things ought to be in our minds. Not what works the best, not what's the wisest, but subjectively speaking, what we just plain want in life. Not even what we want overall in life either, but just moment to moment what we want. And these things change moment by moment, right? Our love is based on how things turn out for us or how God provides or doesn't provide our moment by moment desires. And it's in those moments where we kind of depart from God. These expectations of how God should make things right are in the background of this psalm as well. And we'll see how this is together. But before we get into these things though, I wanna say it's not necessarily bad to have expectations of God. That's not what, you know, you shouldn't leave today thinking, okay, I can't expect anything of God. He's, you know, that's a bad father. Don't think that way, okay? Some expectations are right to have. We can look at the expectations that the people of Israel and we too have of God in two categories. 
So the first one, expectations that make sense and are right to hold. And then the other side is pretty obvious, right? Expectations that don't make sense, that you know, are illogical or are just plain wrong to have. So for example, what do I mean? In our marriage, you know, with uh, my wife Bora, it's good, for, it's good and right for her and for me to expect that we love and are faithful to love one, to one another. Is that right? Like married couples, you know this, right? Like it's okay to expect that you're gonna love me. You're gonna be faithful to me. Makes sense in the context of the vows that we made. But an example of an expectation that's a little unfair or doesn't really make sense. It's wrong for me to dictate how she should love me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so say that I'm really passionate about exercise. Okay, if you know me really well, you'll really have to stretch your imagination here, okay? And so I tell my wife, I'm expecting to be loved by the freedom that you grant me to pursue this passion. So Bora, I'm gonna be out of the house five nights out of seven. Gotta deal with it, you know? And I expect you to have some really good protein on the table when I get home. I'd rather spend that time exercising than seeing you. Would it be right for me to say, you must love me in that way or else I'm walking? No, it would seem that I'm only taking part in this relationship when things are good for me. So that's an unfair expectation. Now, there's a lot that's been communicated in Psalm 118. Some of the good expectations, the ones that make sense for the people to have, they expect God's faithful love to endure forever. We've heard that word, you know, again and again, right? They expect God's faithful love to endure forever. They know that he's the only one who can save, and so they're crying out to him for victory. These are good and right for the people to expect of God, because this is who God is. He says so himself. He actually reveals himself in Exodus 34, where he says, so it says this, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So when God tells us who he is, when he reveals his character to us, we can then in turn expect that from him. He's telling us exactly who he is, so we can turn back and say, okay, I know who you are. You tell the truth, this is who you are, so I expect that from you. And in fact, as you work your way through the Psalm, Psalm 118, you might find, hang on a second, you've said that there's some unfair expectations here, I'm not seeing them. You might find that you don't really see anything out of the ordinary. Like maybe the language used in verse 25 makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable because of how big the false teaching of prosperity gospel has gotten. And so you're like, oh, I don't know about success. Like, should we not have success? You know, the ideas conveyed about God though overall seem okay. So where are these expectations of how God should make things right? To answer your question, let me ask you a question. Is there a song that means something to you because you heard it 
while you were going through something in life. Like, just think for a moment. Any song in your mind, you were going through this, and this song suddenly means so much to you. Usually it's like a breakup song or something, right? Like, I don't know why that is. Why does, this, why does that song mean something to you? Is it necessarily because of the intent of the songwriter? Like, were they thinking, okay, I really need, you know, this person to think about this as they're writing this? Is it the words that they use, the music that they made? Not necessarily. In music, like in other arts, the intent of the writer of the song, it's not always fully communicated across to the listener. You guys know this from English class, right? Like, you're always kind of like, did, the, did Shakespeare really mean that? Or are you just teaching us that? You know, you wonder these things. The listener will sometimes come up with their own symbolic meaning for the music or the lyrics. You know, artists know this, right? And oftentimes, it'll be based on what that listener is just going through the first time that they hear that song. What they experienced in their past, it colors the way that we hear these songs. You know, sometimes I'll look up at lyrics for songs online, right? And there's a particular website where just users like me, people can post up what they think the song means. And it's like, sometimes I'm like, whoa, that's pretty interesting, that's pretty good. And sometimes I'm like, like, I don't think you even have ears. Like, how do you hear that in that song? That doesn't make sense. But it will always hold a particular meaning for those people that are posting these meanings, these interpretations. Now, with that in mind, let's superimpose Psalm 118 on top of Israel's situation that we looked at last week. So Israel has been subjected to rule from Egypt, Assyria. Last week we saw Babylon come into power over Israel. Soon we're gonna see Rome take charge over Israel. What new meaning does Psalm 118 suddenly take on for you, for these people? Jump down to verses 10 to 14. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now you might know, if you know biblical background stuff, the original meaning of these verses, it pointing back to when the Lord's hand came and saved Israel from Egypt. It's in the Exodus, right? When he parted the Red Sea. You know, verse 14 is an exact quote from that victory song at the Red Sea. After God had saved the Israelites by parting the sea and allowing them to walk across and the Egyptians couldn't make it across, the Israelites sing these exact words. But you can quite easily see how the nations surrounding like bees, and bees, you know, you can feel the Babylonian army surrounding Jerusalem, besieging the city. You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine with me that you're living in the city, okay? Imagine with me that you're an Israelite living in Jerusalem after it fell to Babylon, okay, I'm, I'm young Adiah, you know, Joshua, you're Yeshua, you know, like, just come up with like a Hebrew name for yourself, you're living in Jerusalem, 
and you hear the people around you singing this song, Psalm 118. I know how I would feel if I'm hearing this song in my broken down city. I'm homeless, I'm destitute, I'm living on the street and I'm looking around at these Babylonians. I would sing with an idealized vision in my mind. I would sing with all this imagination. Like I know my city fell and I know the reality of my situation. We're being ruled by Babylon. We're singing this song but I wish with all my heart that this weren't the case. That the reality were like the words of this psalm. That in the name of the Lord, I rose up and I destroyed all my enemies. My city didn't fall. Having seen the way, last week we saw this, right? King Zedekiah was taken away in chains after being humiliated. I would think of verse 13. The way they pushed him to make him fall. But in my mind, I would wish with all my heart that he had this otherworldly power. He fought back like in the movies. With all his might, beats him with the Lord's help, like the psalm says. Now, although our wishing that things had gone differently might not change the past, as we're singing this together, we might remember something. We might suddenly remember, wait a minute, we sing this song traditionally. Psalm 118, we actually sing this together, and it's a group of six songs, Psalm 113 to 118. We sing it every Passover. And we would remember, wait a minute, Passover? That's the ceremonial meal where we commemorate how we were rescued from Egypt by the Lord. And as we sing this song, every Passover, we would remember. At that time, we had no power. We couldn't do anything. We had no hope of escaping from Egypt, of going through that sea, but the Lord single-handedly won the victory. He rescued us from death by himself, but we the people, we the ones singing it, we shared in the victory together because we could enjoy this freedom instead of enslavement and life instead of death. And perhaps at that moment, you and I, we would cry out. We would pray for God to deliver us. Deliver us. Make things right. Get rid of these Babylonians. Give us our independence and our freedom. Unfortunately, we probably conveniently forget what happened after the Exodus event. The people at that time received what was good from God. The Lord saved them from slavery and death in Egypt. And then the people had certain expectations about how life should be. Their hearts weren't set on God. They were set on their own desires and they would grumble and say things like, I wish we were in Egypt. You know, we had fish and onions to eat at least instead of this bread, this manna, what is it, you know? And their turning away was exemplified in their creation of this golden calf, which they worshiped as God, breaking the first two of the 10 commandments. The people, they only love God when things were going their way. They forgot when things looked a little bit different from their expectations. 
They're like the fans that only sing when they're winning. They come back when they needed that help that only the Lord could give, when their situation was desperate enough. But they quickly turn away when things weren't on their terms once again. Those are some of the expectations that begin piling up as these people are singing this song over the generations. Maybe you'd agree with me, these expectations are wrong to hold. But here's something really intriguing. These expectations, they're not wrong because they're just plain bad. I'm sure you'd agree with me. Like, it, it sucks to be ruled by a foreign power. We haven't experienced it ourselves, so it's okay, right? But it would be terrible you know, to suddenly be you know, enslaved. But actually, these expectations are wrong. Be not because their imaginations are running away with them and they're thinking, you need to do this, God. No, but actually the opposite. They're so unimaginative. They're so short-sighted. When God saved the people from captivity in Egypt, what did he save them for? What was it for? What was the point? Was it just salvation and freedom from their bonds and slavery? No. As we looked at last week, the story began in Genesis with the man and the woman in the garden. And though they lived in complete shalom, in the home that God created for them, they desired something else. There was something going on in their hearts where they wanted something else. Though God loved them, they didn't love him in the same way. They only loved him on their own terms. And they sought out their own heart's desires. And then the story continued from there with each successive generation continuing in this pattern. So God saved the people from Egypt. The love between God and the people was supposed to be mutual. I'm saving you for this purpose. Psalm 118 puts it plainly. Let all the people see and praise God's faithful love which endures forever. That should cause them to approach the gates of righteousness and praise him, to come to the altar and worship him. That's what we should be doing when we come together, right? Trusting in him, recognizing that he knows what he's doing, that he's worthy of complete love and trust and devotion. But oftentimes that question comes up. Do you really know what you're doing, God? Like, why are things turning out this way in my life? Why don't I have this that I've been praying for? And we know that the people in the Exodus generation became the wilderness generation as they wandered after their own hearts instead of trusting in God. What were they set free for? if their hearts remained enslaved, if their hearts still could long after, long after Egypt, what were they set free for? Are the things that the people in Babylonian captivity are asking for any better? Psalm 118 paints a musical word picture of the first people who sang it as they were rescued at the Exodus. Okay, you, if you follow along next to the book of Exodus, you can kind of see what's happening. They make their way through the wilderness towards Mount Zion, and the people sang it for generations. 
throughout the rule of Assyria, Babylon, Rome. And the immediate problem, the enemy that was right in front of their eyes were these foreign rulers. They'd be in their face. They can't help it. And so they sang, expecting freedom from their oppressors here on earth. But the biggest enemy was their own hearts. They themselves were the builders who looked to make their own home in Jerusalem. They were the architects of their heart's desires in their own understanding instead of looking at God's wisdom in finding their home with him. As they sang the song, they didn't know that the psalm would be fulfilled perfectly as this song echoes throughout the generations, through the halls of time, centuries after the Exodus event, through to their captivity in Babylon, all the way to Palm Sunday next week, when the Romans occupied the land, and to the Lord Jesus' arrival. Psalm 118, 19 to 21 reads, open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. I will give thanks to you because you have answered me and have become my salvation. And next week on Palm Sunday, we'll look more closely at Luke 19 as we enter into Holy Week. But the links with Psalm 118 are incredible. And Jesus is the one welcomed in by the people. He rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem and the people sing the words of Psalm 118 over him. These words right here. They place the weight of their small expectations on his shoulders about what they believe the Messiah should be doing in order to make things right for them. And Jesus He approaches the gates of the city. He enters in, knowing that those who made a way for him to enter the city, soon they're gonna reject him. He's the chief cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. Verses 25 onwards reads, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus ends his journey here on earth at the altar of God. The festival sacrifice is to be bound with cords to the horns of the altar. Can we go to the next slide there? The festival sacrifice is supposed to be bound with cords to the horns of the altar like you see in the photo on screen. The horns of the altar are the things in the four corners there and you see the priests doing something. What does this remind you of? Jesus, our perfect Passover lamb. He's a sacrifice for us. The horns of the altar become the arms of the cross. He's bound to this cross with nails. And the people could never have predicted this. They're singing for the sake of their deliverance. Their imaginations couldn't stretch to the point of seeing that their need was actually for their hearts to be delivered over to them. No, their thoughts, they could only be cast at what was directly in front of them. 
the foreign power that they wanted gone from the land. And so even as they broke out into song, as they welcomed Jesus in, they couldn't have pictured this. What about for you? Do we, new life, have certain things that we expect of God that aren't quite right, that aren't quite imaginative enough? How do the things that we expect fall short of something even greater that God desires for us? How about if I pray? Why don't you join with me in prayer? Let's pray together in thanksgiving. Let's give thanks to God, as the psalm says, for his steadfast love, his, his desire to give us something much greater than we could even imagine. So pray with me.
despite our sin, our shortcoming, our unimaginative prayers, your imagination stretches far beyond that. Thank you, Lord, for your faithful, steadfast love that isn't dependent on us, but is dependent on your character. We remember your character today, God, and we ask that all of those things will be made present in our lives today. Help us, Lord, to turn to you and to recognize, Lord, that your grace is far more than we ever imagined. Even though our sin is so much greater, even though our need is so much bigger. Our God, you, you, Father, are even bigger than that. Your grace is much deeper than the greatest of our sins. And so we turn to you and we ask, Lord, that you would save us from ourselves, that you would save us from our hearts, that you would liberate us from the evil desires of our hearts, and that you would give us, Lord, a great devotion, a trust, and a love for you. Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters here at New Life. As we continue on through this Lenten season, as we look towards Easter, many of us have given up things that we can draw closer to you. But these things pale in comparison to what you gave up, the life of your son, Jesus, on that cross for us. And so we turn to you, God, and we ask, Lord, that you would make that reality hit hard home for us, God. Help that to make a home in our hearts as we make our home in you. Guide us by your presence as we continue on throughout the service. Help us to seek you and to find a new devotion to you, a new commitment to you as we love you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.